Where are you going to draft Fernando Tatis in 2022? How about Ronald Acuna or Jacob deGrom? I'll ask Matt Dodge about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 20th. It's show number 40 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday, almost full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Matt Dodge, a Playing Time Tomorrow roster analyst at BaseballHQ.com, discussing where last year's top-drafted players should go next year, the techniques of medium-term roster forecasting, and his slump, pump, dump, and jumps for the rest of this season. We'll also have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including all kinds of news with rosters in San Diego and Milwaukee and the closer role in Atlanta. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including the Oakland rotation, IL returnees in New York, and the Boston signing of Travis Shaw. Our regular commentators are taking the week off, resting up for the stretch run, so let's get started. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We're going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Matt Dodge, a Playing Time Tomorrow roster analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Matt, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. I, I was going to say that this is your first time with us, but you were part of our big trade deadline roundtable. Yes, I was. Hi, Patrick. Uh, that was a lot of fun, and I'm sure this will be as well. I'm sure it's going to be terrific. Uh, let's start with your background in fantasy baseball. How'd you start playing? Oh, well, when I was a kid, there was this game called All-Star Baseball, where you would you know, sort of spin a wheel and take the outcome of the wheel for the batter and the pitcher. And that sort of led me into some mail-in games uh, that I played as a young adult. And, um, you know, I joined, I joined a rotisserie league back in the mid nineties and I've been playing ever since. When you were a kid, did you ever play a game? Sports Illustrated put out a game that had cards and, but they weren't anywhere near as detailed as sort of stratomatic type cards. It was just uh, sort of the top 60 or so players of all time. And you could either deal them out to each other and, you know, play them at random or you could draft them or whatever. And then there was a little playing board and, and you would uh, roll dice to determine outcomes. It was a lot of fun. And I think it might've been a precursor. Did you ever play those kind of sim games? No, not that I can remember. You know, there's a lot of brain cells have died in, in 60 plus years. So, um, <laughs> but I don't remember that. What formats do you prefer these days? Uh, I prefer single leagues and American league. Of course, my coverage beat for baseball HQ is the AL central. So I'm most comfortable with AL only leagues. Uh, but I, I dabble in a bunch of different ones. Like what? Uh, well, I have, I'm in an NL only league. I'm in a mixed league with several members of the baseball HQ staff. And I have an oddball mixed league which is an American League East and a National League East uh, player pool based on the few number of team managers that we have in the league. Do you call it oddball because of the rules or because of the people in the league? 
let's say it's a diff- an oddball player pool format. Let's leave it at that. And and yeah, we are kind of oddballs, but generally leagues with those kind of oddball rules tend to attract kind of oddball people. And I'm not saying that in a pejorative way. I think people who are willing to take a chance on an odd rule set are a bit you know, uncharacteristic themselves and just the willingness to take a chance on something like that makes them more interesting, frankly. Uh, how many leagues are you playing in this season? I, I'm playing in five this season. Um, so I, I'm relatively busy. Uh, I do have a daily routine. Three of the leagues are daily leagues. So every morning I'm up checking on the results of those and making my roster decisions. And then the other two leagues are weekly leagues. And how are you doing in all those leagues? Battling for first in one of them. I am in third place, which is a money position for the second one. I am uh, battling for fifth place in my primary league. Uh, My primary league is a league that is in its 36th or 37th season. Uh, It actually was featured both in a John Hunt baseball weekly article back around the year 2004 2005 and it was also it got a picture in the silly little game espn 30 for 30 video and in that league finishing in fifth place not only gives you a little bit of money but it also gives you the first pick in the reserve round so that's where you pick up the best prospects and a couple years ago that got me adley rutschman not a bad guy to have, but we'll, we'll see how that works out. I played in a league years ago, an AL only, where we had the same sort of setup. Fifth wasn't a, a money spot, but what we said was if you finished fourth, which basically got your, your entry fee back, you could choose whether you wanted the fourth place prize or the fifth place prize, and the fifth place guy would have to take what you didn't want. And in, most guys actually would forego the 100 bucks or 125 bucks, whatever it was, and uh, would take the fifth place prize, which was the first pick. We didn't have a reserve draft. We had an actual minor league draft that was separate from the uh, uh, undertakings of the league proper. And because it was a keeper league, people really valued the idea of having that that first overall draft pick in the minor league draft, although it got diluted later on because we they kept adding more and more roster spots for the minor leaguers. At the time, it was only four or five guys that were that you could have, so there was always a nice, healthy pool of guys to draw from. But now, I think they were up to 20 or something like that, and, and uh, you know, when there's 12 teams and everybody's got 20 prospects already accounted for, having first pick isn't that great of a deal. Yeah, depth matters. <laughs> it really does, but the idea of... Uh, creating an incentive with a fifth place finish, whether it's monetary or draft picks or something like that is a really good idea. I've been talking about that off and on all year here on Baseball HQ Radio because so many guys are playing in multiple leagues and then the question becomes how do you keep them engaged and interested? How do you keep them competitive and active? All of these questions and uh, a lot of it just comes down to incentives. If you have an incentive to go finish 12th because you get the first draft pick, which we see in the NBA and, and other leagues, then you're going to get guys who are doing that because they want that uh, advantage down the road because they know they're out of the money. Uh, what was your path, Matt, from uh, fantasy baseball player to fantasy baseball analyst? I had some early success in some fantasy leagues Oh, in, in the late 90s. And with one of those wins, 
which got me first place in the league and got me the uh, traditional Yoohoo shower as a result. I'm, I'm sure many of the listeners do not know about Yoohoo showers, but they were an essential element to the original Glenn Wagoner rules for rotisserie league baseball. And a lot of them might know about you who showers, but not because of uh, fantasy baseball, but we'll leave that aside. Move on. <laughs> so I took the winnings from that league and I signed up for a trip to this fantasy baseball symposium that was held in Arizona uh, by the staff and members of baseball HQ. Uh, in fact, I guess before then, it wasn't even BaseballHQ.com. It was just Baseball HQ. But I got the chance to go out there and meet a lot of people and see wonderful baseball. And when I came back from that first trip, and I made one or two trips after that, I came back and I wrote articles about who the speakers were and what players I got to see playing in the fall league and sent that around to my league mates saying, you know, Hey, this is a really great thing. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And I, I strongly recommend that if you've got the, the family and the situation that allows you to do that, you should go. And I did that. And I guess that was my beginning into writing about fantasy baseball. And a couple of years later, uh, Ron Chandler put out the, the shingle saying writers were needed. And I took a chance and submitted an application. And Ron had known me from seeing me and meeting me at the symposium. And so that's how I ended up at Baseball HQ. And since you've been at Baseball HQ, it's been a good number of years, it sounds like. Uh, what roles have you held? Well, I, I began writing rotisserie-based fantasy articles, and I was behind the scenes in a lot of the, the data analyst part of the league, part of the, part of the website, where we maintained the, the player projection denominators, the amount of playing time people are expected to get on the various teams. And so I've, you know, I was in the back end working on working on the playing time and also working on things like the, the logs of pure quality starts, the PQS charts and the detailed indicators and the bullpen indicators uh, section and keeping the injury lists and the position eligibilities. And over the years, we've become more automated and integrated with stat service providers and getting that information together. But at the beginnings, uh, myself and a few other longtime folks were in there doing all of those tweaks on a daily to weekly basis uh, to keep everything current and fresh with daily projections of what's going to happen for the rest of the season in front of us. And then as that got automated, the next logical step was to be part of the playing time tonight today team where we would provide the analysis and the recommendations based on day-to-day -day player moves and when that didn't uh, wasn't the best fit for my life here at home 
I moved to the, the weekly schedule for playing time tomorrow. And how long ago was that that you did started doing playing time tomorrow? And has it always been the AL Central? As a regular gig, it has always been the AL Central for the last, certainly this year and last year, and maybe a little bit of the previous year. And, and before that, I dabbled a little bit as a pinch hitter for other divisions, generally American League, though. Well, let's talk about this playing time tomorrow analysis that you do. It's all about roster forecasting. I think the dividing line between playing time today and tomorrow is playing time today is really looking at today and playing time tomorrow. Of course, looking at tomorrow. No big surprise there, I suppose. Uh, you covered the American League Central, you mentioned. So what techniques do you use to gather the inf- information that you need that allows you to do the forecasting of rosters and look down the road rather than looking at what's happening right in front of our faces? Well, I stay current on the data and, you know, I, I, I read whatever we have going on at baseballhq.com. I also stay connected to the various um, fantasy news providers uh, that have, you know, that have um, daily timely notifications of player transactions and their, their take on fantasy baseball impacts. Uh, I also stay in tune with the newspapers that cover the teams in my coverage area. So I'm, I'm checking the newspapers for the AL Central cities and staying abreast of what their local beat writers are saying about the teams, which may or may not get into the, the aggregates that the, the fantasy sites provide. I also, you know, use use our statistics and our analysis and try to read between the lines for who's hot and who's not and who's the likely replacements that will come from that and connect that to minor league data so that we can see how those minor leaguers are performing in their current assignments and do they have indications that they are ready to help out the big club. One of the challenges in any sort of analysis, not just baseball, but when you're, especially when you're looking at uh, sources that are mostly written, like newspaper stories, web stories, and so forth, rather than pure data, is separating news from noise. There's a lot of noise in baseball coverage, like there is in political coverage and all other kinds of coverage. What do you do to filter the news from the noise and get the news out? Well, it's, it's sort of one of those things where everybody doesn't have the same noise. So if you can pick up on a common thread and see it in multiple sources at multiple times, then there might be just a better chance that it is true rather than, you know, somebody just trying to fill an article or meet a deadline when he didn't really have much to go on. So um, it's really just that, that checking and, when possible also, you know, there's, there's no excuse for watching the games and see what happened in the real games. And so with, you know, with all the games available pretty much on TV, there's also the ability to make sure that what you are reading in the media is consistent with what you're seeing on the field. I often wonder about that because, uh, you know, uh, I can remember talking about First Pitch Arizona, which you mentioned earlier, and we might get a chance to talk about a little later as well. But 
I was talking with some guys who were out at First Pitch Arizona one time, and, and one of them said something to the effect that you can read all you want about these prospects, but there's no substitute for seeing them live and in action. And I thought to myself, you're seeing two at-bats. You know, how much information are you actually gleaning from putting your eyes on, on a player who might who might be really, really good and just have two bad at-bats or might be not that great and just happen to hit a home run and a triple, you know, kind of thing. So uh, how do you calibrate how much validity to apply to your own observations versus the weight of data and the other sources of information that you have? Oh, that's a good question. Thanks. I thought of it. I, I guess it's, I guess it's kind of intuitive. I, I like you and, and probably all of our listeners, we watch a lot of baseball. We, we, we do this stuff online, but we also watch a lot of baseball in person whenever we can and on TV. And it's not that you obsess over a particular at bat at two, but you just you look at the general approach and you're not exactly looking at whether it's a hit, safe hit, or whether it's an error or even a foul ball, but you're just you're looking at it at a at a pitch level and building a database that sits in the back of your mind about a particular player so that you can then compare to when you read the news and help that to filter the noise out. I don't know that I trust myself to do that, but to, <laughs> I don't. I, to be honest with you, I don't actually watch that much baseball on TV. I, my wife's a Blue Jays fan, so we watch quite a few of their games. So I listen to a lot of baseball on the radio while I'm doing other stuff. But it's an interesting conundrum, and I'm glad you figured out a way to, to manage it without. I think that the potential key weakness or the the danger is that you come to trust your own observational opinion over the data. You know, some people say, yeah, I know he's got, uh, you know, a 80% strikeout rate and never draws a walk, but I saw him hit two home runs and by gosh, I'm sticking with him. And I, I think there's the path that you don't want to go down, whether you're an analyst or whether you're just somebody making decisions for one's own fantasy baseball roster. Agreed. Agreed. But, you know, maybe the guy doesn't take a walk because maybe the pitcher doesn't want to Maybe the pitcher is throwing everything down the middle, or maybe the pitcher is so far outside that he's just following the ball off and waiting for something that he can hit. It, it's it, it's not an exact science for sure. Well, when it comes to the rosters that you're looking at, are there kinds of rosters that are more difficult than others to forecast and kinds of rosters that are relatively straightforward? Oh, yes. I, this, was, this was a question I was looking for looking forward to talk about um I, I guess when when a team is clearly in it to win it versus a team is going through the repro rebuilding process it's pretty easy to forecast roster moves and roster changes and all in those situations you know the the teams who are in it to win it are the ones who are you know, playing for today, getting the stars and the, the uh, complementary pieces in order to be able to make their run into and then deep into the playoffs, while those who are looking to the future are evaluating their prospects and game situations in the majors and seeing what things need to be further developed in order to help that team take the next step. The teams who are in the middle 
the, the teams who are muddling around and, and maybe on the fringes of the playoffs and maybe not, they're the ones that are hardest to project what they're going to do with their players. And, and in my coverage area, the American League Central, that's the conundrum I feel about the Cleveland Indians. I was wondering when you said that about the whole issue of whether the team thinks it's got a chance to get to the playoffs or not and the effect that that has on how you look at a team and how consistent you can expect their behavior to be with regard to roster adjustments. And I wonder if you've noticed as they keep expanding the playoffs, whether there's more teams that kind of find themselves sneaking without merit into that muddled middle (laughs) because with the second wild card spot in the play-in game, more teams probably think they have a chance and that must make it a little more difficult at taking it largely for you to figure out where that team stands insofar as its ability to remain consistent in the way you described. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, I think things got pretty clear at the trading deadline that, that teams were making the choice then whether they were going for it or not. And, um, you know, before then, it, it's it's sort of subject to interpretation. But at, as the de- trading deadline approaches, it sort of sorts itself out. But by the time that happens, it can be uh, a little bit too late for anybody to take advantage of what they think might happen because there's only about eight weeks left or something like that in the season. Uh, you you write the playing time tomorrow every week. I do every week during the uh, really during spring training on through the season. We normally, there's not really much tomorrow left when we get to the last few weeks in September, uh, but we don't have an official end date as of this point for the current season. And when does your AL Central coverage come out? Uh, It comes out on Fridays. So so um, right after you listen to this podcast, you can go over and, and take a look at it, or maybe you'll read the article first. And then when you pick up the podcast, you'll say, oh. That's what this guy looks like, or sounds like. I will give a, a little bit of a free preview here. In this week's playing time tomorrow, I noticed that you were looking at the catcher situation in Kansas City with Salvador Perez having a shot at 40 home runs. He's having a great year anyway. But there's a possible challenge looming in the form of Alex Becky's frequent flyer last week, the catching prospect MJ Melendez. What's the story there? Well, the, the way it's... It, it's shaping up as it could happen tomorrow or sometime in the near future is that they just promoted Melendez from double A to triple A. And in his first week, his second game, he hit another home run and he's hitting two more since. So he's up to 31 home runs as, as we speak, uh, which is second in the minors uh, for 2021. So he's on the fast track, perhaps, uh, they just sent down uh, one of their other catching prospects, uh, Mybris Deloria, who was getting reps at AAA, and he's had some cups of coffee with the Royals over the last year or two. Uh, he went down to AA so that they could move Melendez up, and he's going to be in the primary catcher role there uh, for the foreseeable future, but he would be the one. He seems to be being fast-tracked. His defensive skills are good. 
and he would be the one that would be a nice third catcher in a slightly expanded roster for 2021, and that would give Sal Perez the opportunity to get his swings at DH, where he has the second most uh, games at DH on the Royals roster behind the now traded away Jorge Soler. So the Royals are not averse to putting him in the in the DH slot to give him at bats, and that would also give them a chance to look at Melendez in September. I was also thinking that uh, Sal Perez is not getting any younger, and he's caught an awful lot of games. I think I remember hearing somebody say that he's caught more games in the last five or six years than anybody else in baseball, and he's a fairly big dude too. So all that squatting and bending and stuff like that uh, can't be good for longevity. They might want to. C- get him more uh, plate appearances as a DH just to save wear and tear and maybe keep him going for a, a year or two more. Uh, after I heard Alex's report in his frequent flyer last week about MJ Melendez, I looked him up and both of you guys are dead right. This guy's really something in the minor leagues. I noticed, for instance, that he's got a 999 OPS in AA this year. He got promoted and his OPS fell all the way to 917. He's got a tremendous slugging percentage. He's got three home runs and just 29 plate appearances so far this year in AAA, which is about the same pace that he was doing in AA. I think he's the real deal. I do too. And and he had an interesting take. I was just, I read this through the Kansas City Stars coverage uh, the other day with his promotion. And he really benefited from the 2020 non-season because he – he didn't have to look at his batting average and his statistics up on the screen while he was batting. It was all practice games, if you will. And he really flourished in that environment because he could make adjustments with his swing, see the impact of it, but not have having the, the failures stare down at him from the screen. So he, he's really took advantage of the circumstances of 2020 and it's made him a much better player thus far in 2021. We often forget that they're people and not machines and that looking at your 209 batting average in you know two-story tall numbers might be a bit of a discouraging factor. It Maybe it is good that he managed to get through a, a whole season without having to worry about that and could focus on the task at hand. Uh, Two new candidates for auditions in the shambles we call the Minnesota pitching rotation. You've got (laughs) 35-year-old lefty Andrew Albers and the not-much-younger righty Chandler Shepard. And I wondered when I read this in Playing Time Tomorrow whether this is a a situation where you're looking around and saying, there's nothing going on in Minnesota except this, and i got to put something in there so it's this. But is there any reason to be interested in either of these guys? At my first glance, I thought, huh? Well, well, the reason to be interested is that their, you know, their best, their best prospects from AAA are already cycling through the rotation. So we've got Griffin Jacks up there, and we've got Bailey Ober up there, and they just called up uh, Charlie Jenkins uh, in the rotation. So they've pretty much drained the the, the prospect guys from AAA. And their next best pitching prospects in double A are either not pitching well um, or they're not, um, 
They just haven't had enough seasoning. So there looks to be a gap with Michael Pineda's trip to the IL that they're going to need another spot start or two in order to bridge that gap until he comes back. And these, these um, veterans holding down the Ford and AAA are pitching well and they could get the chance to pick up a couple of those starts before uh, Pineda comes back or uh, other, other resources become available. Having said all that, it doesn't seem like either of these guys is an immediate threat to anybody's, uh, to crack anybody's fantasy roster unless maybe you're in a 12-team only league. Yeah, and, and um, you know, as I... I do all these things based on sort of hard to ignore the the filters that I participate in and four of my five leagues are essentially only leagues. So I tend to take a deeper look at players than uh, those who only play in mixed or or shallower formats. And finally, Matt, uh, in Chicago, Mikey Matuk, really? (laughs) Well, Mikey Matuk is a, step up over Billy Hamilton and um, he offers, he offers a right-handed bat. Now that could be the short side of a platoon, but he is, he is a near equivalent to, he's a near equivalent at the right side to Brian Goodwin from the left side. And he's got much better defensive skills uh, than certainly much better defensive skills than um, Andrew Vaughn. And so if Vaughn is finding his time at DH or at first base, uh, there would seem to be an opportunity for Matuk to fill that void as the kind of player that the White Sox would want to have around as they are chasing for the best record, making sure that they have enough defense and offense to uh, pick up some couple games as they try to track down the best record in the in the league well matt this has been terrific so far very interesting let's take a break for our national league and american league news with nick and ray and then we'll finish our discussion a little later okie dokie i'll be here matt dodge is a playing time tomorrow roster analyst at baseballhq.com and he'll be back a little later in the show coming up We have our Market Watch player news reports. Nick has the National League News. Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the GM's office, co-general manager and columnist Ray Murphy says he's making his peace with DFS once and for all. In playing time tomorrow, analyst Jock Thompson looks at the rosters of all five teams in the American League West, focusing on possible candidates for the reduced September call-up and looking at the lingering injuries to Mike Trout and Alex Bregman. And in the Eyes Have It, scouting analyst Chris Blessing, also the co-host of Baseball HQ's The Eyes Have It podcast, heads down to Florida to get a first-hand look at switch-hitting Yankees outfield prospect Jason Dominguez. 
And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in Facts and Flukes, news updates in Playing Time Today, roster forecasting in Playing Time Tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in Brad Coleman's Market Pulse column, injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day. There's depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. So when you add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. That's what it's all about, and that's why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League News and our old friend, Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start in San Diego. Boy, the wheels are really coming off down for the Padres for the longest time this year. They were right in the thick of things in that National League West, and now they look like they're falling a little bit behind the Dodgers. And, of course, the Giants are having a terrific year, too. And as if they didn't have enough bad news, the Padres put right-handed starter Hugh Darvish on the IL. He's kind of their ace. He's got back tightness, is what the team said. The team also recalled a right-hander named Rice Nair, K-N-E-H-R, have to admit, I've never heard of him from AAA. Jock Thompson covers the Padres for playing time today. This doesn't look really great for that beleaguered San Diego rotation. The injury leaves the Padres rotation in really in a heap of trouble. Uh, with Joe Musgrove, Blake Smell, and David Weathers. Uh, David Weathers, 9.39 ERA to 23 in his pitch in the second half. Those are the only healthy starters. We anticipate more short starts in bullpen games from the likes of uh, reliever Craig Stamen. And bullpen shufflers Nair and Nabil Chrismat over the near term. Padres also signed a, a kind of a desperate signing free agent right handed pitcher Jake Arietta on Monday, and he got rocked on Wednesday in Colorado. Three and a third innings pitched, five earned runs, seven hits, one walk, three strikeouts. Uh, Jock Thompson reports uh, being unable to imagine Arietta being much real game or fantasy value down the stretch with his 6.88 ERA, 1.76 whip through 86 innings pitched. But at this point, the Padres are just looking for healthy arms, and stranger things have happened. But at least it fills a need in the pitching projection for a while, and we're while they figure out what's going on with you, Darvish, and how long he may be out. I had to kind of giggle when you said, uh, in a somewhat desperate move, <laughs> I thought to myself, somewhat desperate? <laughs> this is about as desperate as it gets. But I have to say, when I first heard that Darvish was going on the IL, my first thought was, what about their prospects, especially Mackenzie Gore? Gore has a 5.85 ERA to 20 innings pitch at AAA and hasn't made a minor league appearance since June the 18th. Uh, there's also 24-year-old Adrian Martinez, who has a 2.34 ERA through 81 innings pitched in Double A, 83 strikeouts, 24 walks. But Martinez isn't even on the 40-man roster yet. So where San Diego goes from here is really anybody's guess. Doesn't look like uh, there's going to be much fertile ground for fantasy uh, managers as well to look at that San Diego rotation. Uh, Denelson Lamette's also out for the year. Or is he out for the year? I don't even know. 
I, you know, I'm not sure. I think he is. I have him on one team, and I've kind of got him on permanent IL at the moment because he's been shuffling back and forth so much. I think he may indeed be out for the year. Yeah, I had him on a roster or two, and I know he's either on reserve or I dropped him as well, and I can't imagine I would have done that if there looked like there was much of a chance that he was going to come back and perform. Uh, staying in San Diego, Nick, the Padres did get some good news. They were able to activate Fernando Tatis off the IL. Remember when we first talked about this a week or two ago, boy, it looked like it could be really bad news. And it looks like they were listening to our National League News reports here on Baseball HQ Radio because Fernando Tatis came back and he started in the outfield. Tatis was a starter in right field on Sunday versus Arizona. Hit two home runs and a double in his first three at-bats. Suffice it to say that he's fine again for now and that fantasy managers should get him back into their lineups. The likelihood of Tatis now spending most of these final weeks in right field sets off far-reaching playing time projection changes. Jake Cronenworth now becomes the most of the time, shortstop, ditto Adam Frazier at second base. First baseman, Eric Hosmer. Outfielders, Tommy Pham, Trick Grisham, and Will Myers all project to battle with each other for playing time down the stretch. All have been inconsistent most of the season. Pham and, and Grisham, uh, in particular, have struggled in the second half, and now they have to produce to, in order to play. Another one of those situations that it's interesting to watch from outside, but from a fantasy perspective, it's really kind of the worst possible news for anybody who has Hosmer, Fam, Grisham, or Myers, because on the one hand, you think, oh, if he only gets hot, I'll be in, in good shape because he'll get more of the playing time. But on the other hand, if none of them gets hot or if they all get sort of progress a little bit evenly, this could be a situation where they all kind of get three-quarter time or two-thirds time. It's really a mess. Uh, roster action in Milwaukee, too. Uh, first, the bad news. Starting pitcher Freddie Peralta. I have Freddie Peralta on a roster, and he's been sensational this season, but he's on the IL. He left his start against St. Louis on Wednesday night with a right shoulder discomfort, they're calling it. Milwaukee recalled a guy called Hobie Milner to take uh, Freddie Peralta's roster spot. What's going on in Milwaukee, Nick? Well, Peralta wasn't hurt while pitching, which I guess is maybe good news. He was hurt while hitting. Had an awkward swing on a strikeout in the third inning and felt something in his shoulder. That's why you have to love the National League owners and their insistence on putting billion-dollar arms out there to swing the bat and run the bases so they can get hurt uh, that much more often. But meanwhile, Milwaukee was running a modified six-man rotation and could be for a while with the five uh, what was five while Peralta gets sorted out, although uh, starting pitcher Adrian Hauser went onto the COVID list and missed a start. Uh, he's through the quarantine now. It appears like he'll be ready to make his next next turn. Peralta's injury also ensures left-handed pitcher Eric Lauer will remain in the rotation. Uh, Milner is a low-leverage reliever who continues to shovel between Milwaukee and AAA. The duration of his current stay with Milwaukee is unknown at this point. I hope Freddie Peralta comes back. I know that they may be soft peddling his return because he's a past reliever he didn't have a lot of innings and we've I think we've talked about this on the podcast here Nick but uh, Freddie Peralta is one of those guys that they're really concerned about how many innings he gets in a year and of course they're going into the playoffs they may just look at the situation and say you know what we're going to let him rest for a while then he'll come back and throw two innings here three innings there we need to get this guy ready to go for a extended playoff run and, and they don't want to run up against their own innings limits. Yeah, I think that you may be right about that. I mean, they're they're looking at playoffs at this point and no reason to rush Peralta back. Uh, so they may, in fact, not do that and make sure he's, he's really ready and rested and ready to go for the playoffs arrive. 
The Brewers also sent infielder Keston Hiura down to the minors again. Tom Kephart covers the Brewers for playing time today, so what's going on with Keston Hiura and who gets the benefit of his departure? Rowdy Telez, acquired in trade from Toronto in early July, has clearly submitted his role as Milwaukee's primary first baseman while Hiura was on the COVID IL, so Hiura's demotion is not surprising. Uh, his plate skills have fully collapsed in 2021 after a 2020 contact rate decline. Uh, Telez got off to a horrendous start in Toronto, pressing for playing time in a loaded batting order, but after a bit of a slow start in Milwaukee, he's come on like gangbusters. Stephen Nickrand had a brief comment last week in the batter's buying guide, saying Telez rewarded owners in July who stuck by him after his struggles to turn his raw hitting tools into production earlier in the season. Had a crazy 1.223 OPS in 37 at-bats in July, backed by a 134 expected power index and elite plate skills. 13% walk rate, 84% contact rate, 1.0 I ratio. Uh, Telez looks set for playing time for the rest of the year in Milwaukee. He's been batting fifth or sixth in that productive lineup, so he could enter 2022 as a premium breakout target. So fantasy and dynasty managers might want to strike while that iron is hot. And there's one last interesting possibility to turn to in Milwaukee. Dan Marcus covers the Brewers for playing time tomorrow, our roster forecasting columns, and he suggested superstar outfielder Christian Yelich might be slugging his way to a bench role. Can this be true? Sounds crazy, right? But Dan says the Brew crew may no longer be able to avoid that possibility as the team gets healthier and as Yelich continues to struggle. Lorenzo Cain and Abacel Garcia have emerged as everyday players, with Garcia performing particularly well with the bat. 74% contact rate, 112 hard, expected hard contact index, 107 expected power index, 33 BPV. By track record, Yelich is still the most likely candidate to join them in his typical role in left field, though their warning size with this play, playing time could begin to slip. Long-expected turnaround this season may not be on its way. His contact rate improved to 80% in August. Plate discipline has remained strong, 0.6.5i all season, but his power has been non-existent. He had failed to log an extra base hit across 25 August at-bats for a double on Saturday against the Pirates. 93 expected power index is below league average, lowest since 2017, and his BPV of just five is by far the lowest of his career. BPV is a base performance value. It's a combination of all the hitter metrics that Baseball HQ tracks. And typically, you know, for a player of Christian Yelich's quality, you're looking in the 75, 80, even 100 range, maybe higher. Five? That just seems ridiculous. Yeah, it really does, doesn't it? That's just, uh, that's amazing to think that his BPV has fallen that low. Yeah, over his career, it's kind of been in the 40s, 50s, and uh, of course in 2019 when he had that tremendous year, 104, uh, the year before that, 94. Uh, he's raised it up since uh, Dan Marcus wrote that piece from five all the way up to eight, but gosh, that's such a low BPV, it's really, really concerning. And if Yelich can't get the job done, then who's going to take his spot, do you think? Well, Tyrone Taylor continues to impress when given an opportunity. He's flashed a combination of contact ability, 76% contact rate, and decent power, uh, 113 power index, 94 expected power index, and speed, uh, 154 uh, speed, five stolen bases. Uh, Taylor has outproduced Yelich in nearly every offensive indicator other than walk rate and on-base average. It's almost unthinkable that the team would bench Yelich in favor of Taylor, but the decision is backed by data at this point. 
Well, I, I don't want to underestimate the importance of on-base average, of course, for the player like uh, Christian Yelich. He gets on base a lot. That's one of his hallmarks. At 371 this year, he's had years over 400. And I think that when we're looking at whether Christian Yelich is going to play that on-base average is not to be discounted. Most teams realize that it's really good to get players who get on base because then they can go around and score runs and do all those other things that are that are terrific. So the power loss, I think, is the bigger in, issue, and I wonder if there's some kind of long-standing injury thing that came up a couple of years ago and then resurfaced in 2020. He really seems to have declined in a way that doesn't suggest a gradual sort of thing. It was very sudden. And when you, when you see that, you always suspect injury. Yes, you do indeed. I mean, with, with that kind of quick decline and someone who's been continually productive, you suspect there's got to be some kind of a hidden injury contributing to it. Uh, but you're right. The on-base, the on-base percentage, uh, you know, you, you, can't, uh, you can't discount that. You can't replace that. I guess what you do as a manager in, that, in that, this kind of instance is you change his lineup spot. You take him out of a spot where you need power, put him in a spot where you need guys to get on base, like the, the first or second spot in the lineup or the ninth spot in the lineup, uh, and continue to to take advantage of that kind of 370 on base percentage. And getting back to his power, you know, for a lot of his career, he wasn't a power guy. He was uh, sort of an 87, 90 uh, power index and expected power index. Then all of a sudden in 2018, it zoops up from just below league average to 156, so one and a half times league average with a 128 expected, 172 in that uh, big year in 2019 with a 146 expected, 143 in the in the short season last year, and then right back down to the mid-80s, which is where it was at the start of his career. And I wonder if perhaps swinging the bat that hard caused him some injury. I don't know what's going on here, but I fear for Christian Yelich's fantasy managers that this is who he is, and you're going to have to adjust your expectations uh, accordingly. Yes, I think you may be right. I think the, uh, the, there was that, that wonderful blip when he had, had the incredible power, and I think you're right. As he, as he ages, this may be who he is, and uh, both uh, the, the, the team he's playing for, Milwaukee, uh, and the uh, fantasy manager may have to adjust what you expect to get from him. And in the meantime, of course, what we've seen in the last couple of years is a contact rate that's gone from 77, 76% for years. That was the range. And then last year in 2020, 62%. This year it's recovered a bit to 67%. But that decline in putting the ball into play has directly affected his batting average, which has traditionally in his career been around 300 280 290 300 and then 2020 205 and this year 239 and he's still drawing the walks so he supports his on-base percentage but boy there's a lot of things that indicate to me that I don't know what Milwaukee's going to do with this information but I know what I'm going to do with it as a fantasy manager and it basically is going to I'm going to let Christian Yelich be somebody else's problem yeah I think that I, I, I agree with you on that uh, it, it's just too unpredictable at this point. Let's move on. In Cincinnati, the Reds put outfielder Jesse Winker having a terrific year. On the 10-day IL, he's got an intercostal strain, which I think is in that family of oblique strains, right? The core muscles and stuff. And they recalled infielder Jose Barrero from AAA. Uh, Tom Kephart covers the Reds for playing time today. What happens in Cincinnati with Winker on the shelf? Well, Winker, Winker's injury creates playing time opportunities for Shogo Akiyama and Aristides Aquino. 
Winker was going well when he was sidelined, batting 371 with three homers and 35 August bats with eye-popping small sample skills. Uh, Akiyama has struggled with little hard contact, but his XBA indicates his batting average could surge. Could surge. Kino continues to be a contact challenge power source, uh, and Barrero rides Cincinnati with a legitimate backup shortstop, though his playing time is likely to be very slight. Boy, Jesse Winker, a $28 player so far this year on Baseball HQ's valuations. 24 homers, a 307 batting average, 71 RBI, 77 runs scored. This is a real blow to the Reds, and obviously it's going to be really disappointing for fantasy managers because chances are they got Jesse Winker fairly far down in the draft or for not that many dollars in an auction, and those are the kind of guys who win you leagues, and then here he is on the IL for heaven knows how long. And, of course, what we know about oblique or core injury is maybe the guy comes back, but he's not the same. There's a there's a decline in production because swinging the bat is a core activity. You got to use those core muscles, and until they're 100 percent healed, you got to expect that the power at least is not going to be back. Right, very definitely. I mean, it's one of those situations where, uh, as a fantasy manager, you don't know what to expect for the rest of the season. And you're right; that's the kind of guy who wins you leagues. So you're, you're certainly looking for a replacement. So you don't uh, tumble in the standings because Winker's out. And finding a guy who's going to bat 307 with 24 home runs, you're not going to find that on the waiver wire unless you get lucky with a call-up or something like that. Uh, Finally, Will Smith has been suddenly kind of shaky in the closer role in Atlanta in August. And with the team scrambling for a playoff spot, Nick, they can't afford to blow too many leads. Uh, Greg Pyron covered this story for Playing Time Tomorrow recently. What's the rap on Will Smith? Smith had converted 25 of 29 save chances in 2021 with a 3.70 ERA, 1.15 whip through 49 innings pitched. But things haven't gone very smoothly of late with a 6.43 ERA, 1.57 whip, and eight strikeouts, six walks in seven August innings. He also blew two of four save chances, looked shaky in a couple of others. Recently acquired right-handed pitcher Rich Rodriguez is an obvious candidate. The former Pirates closer owns a 2.28 ERA and 0.82 whip through 47 innings pitched in 2021. Underlying skills don't support that level of performance. Uh, 4.39 XERA, but the results have certainly been there. Though it's worth noting that he's blown three saves and 17 tries so far in 2021. That's a 2021 save conversion rate of 82% compared to Smith's 86%. Uh, left-handed pitcher Tyler Matzak might also get consideration. 30-year-old has had a couple of rough patches in 2021, but he's tallied 11 holes along with 16 strikeouts, four walks, and 13 scoreless innings over the past 31 days. And has a 2.37 ERA, 1.18 whip, with 46 innings pitched overall. Perhaps the biggest drawback would be his lack of closer experience. Atlanta obviously would prefer to keep Smith in the closer role so that they uh, can uh, use Rodriguez and Matzek in earlier high-leverage spots, but uh, Smith needs to right the ship soon, or he might force manager Brian Snitker to make a change. Interestingly, neither Rodriguez nor Masek has shown platoon splits in 2021, so handedness shouldn't be a huge factor here if a change is eventually made. I was curious about that uh, the statistic about the saves conversion rate between Rodriguez and Smith, uh, 82% for Rodriguez, Smith is 86 And I wondered how that compares with the league in general. And it turns out the league average is only about 61%. So it seems like both of these guys are getting the job done. I wonder about individual pitchers. There may be guys with higher levels of conversion rates, but it seems like 
picking between two relievers, one at 82 and one at 86, is kind of picking nits a little bit. Yeah, I think so. It's one of those situations where uh, you, you might you might uh, feel with given what's happened with Will Smith in uh, in August that he's just a little bit out of whack. It's something that maybe the uh, the pitching coach can help correct, and maybe use Rodriguez once or twice to see if that happens. Uh, I'm I, I, my guess is they're not looking at a long term replacement here. They're just trying to go get Smith back on track. Well, the top guys are guys like Josh Hader, Ian Kennedy this year, Ryan Presley. They're actually up around 95%, so I guess there is a bit of a difference But between the top guys in the next tier, maybe we could say, but I think maybe Smith and Rodriguez would both be in that tier, so it's not something that we could look at as fantasy managers and say, wow, that four percentage point difference, that's enough to make me think differently about pitcher A versus pitcher B. I just don't think it's there. I agree with you. I don't think it is either. All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out. It's always fun to talk to you, and we'll catch up with you again next week. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and columnist Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Glad to be back, Peter. Boy, this was horrific. Chris Bassett got hit by a line drive. The Oakland right-hander was put on the 10-day IL. He's got a broken cheekbone, a broken jaw, and maybe some dental problems down the road. My wife's a former dental assistant. She said that can't be good for the whole uh, teeth situation either. The uh, Athletics have recalled a right-hander, Paul Blackburn from AAA. Uh, Give us the latest on what's going on in Oakland. Uh, This is an injury they could ill afford. Yeah, horrific is certainly the word I was going to use as well. Just, uh, just a gruesome thing to uh, to catch on the highlights. I didn't see it live, but I saw it once, and that was all I needed, right? Um, and it sounds like Bassett is going to have surgery for those multiple injuries you uh, enumerated, which really looks like it should end the season for him, or at least at least as a starter. I, w- I would think the best case would be that he would come back very late in the season and not be able to do anything more than than work as a as a reliever because he won't be stretched out at that point. So he's essentially removed from the rotation for the rest of the year. As as you said, it was Blackburn who got the first start, but there's a revolving door of candidates here. Dalton Jeffries was filling in when uh, James Caprillion got hurt a couple of weeks ago. Caprillion's back now, so that opens the door for Jeffries again. And after that, you know, there's Cole Irvin along with uh, Montas and Manaya. Manaya's been taking on some water lately, so you know, there are also workload management considerations to be uh, to be thought about here as well. There was probably time for all of these guys even before uh, Bassett got hurt. So we'll have to see how they shuffle it, shuffle things around. But I, I would imagine you will see copious amounts of all of these guys trying to fill in the rotation here and maybe for shorter outings. I mentioned that my wife used to be in the dental business, and uh, another thing that she mentioned when we were talking about it was even if the surgery goes swimmingly, you're talking about probably a full six weeks with his jaw wired shut, which means he's going to lose weight. It's hard sure. It's hard to keep the weight on. It's hard to keep your strength up. So even if everything goes perfectly, it seems pretty unlikely that he's going to bounce right back and, and start you know throwing seven innings per start. I think that's exactly right. You're not going to see him throw maybe not even multiple innings until uh, 2022. 
I think that's correct. And meanwhile, this puts Oakland in a pretty precarious situation. Their their hold on that uh, playoff spot is far from certain. There's lots of contenders there, uh, including the Boston Red Sox, who are on a bit of a skid lately. Uh, they seems to seem to have tried to right the ship a little bit by uh, claiming Travis Shaw off waivers. I have to admit, I thought, Travis Shaw, really? But that's what they did. What's the story there? Yeah, bit of a skid is a little bit like saying, you know, there's an ice cube in the water ahead of us. Uh, but but um, yes, things have been uh, rather bleak in Boston lately. And the Shaw thing is interesting because it has some, I think, real ripple effects. I was initially dismissive of it as you were thinking that it was just, you know, triple A depth in this, you know, in these new rules where you can't really make a post waiver trade. You know, you can't go out and get sort of emergency backfill. So I, I was thinking maybe they just spotted Shaw as somebody they're familiar with and thought might be a fit. Obviously, a multi-positional guy, but I, I think it's actually more than that. And if you look a little bit at what the Red Sox have been doing since Kyle Schwarber came back, we haven't really seen Schwarber at first base. And it might be that you know, in uh, after acquiring Schwarber, they found out that that really wasn't going to work that well. Um, Bobby Dahlbeck has picked it up a little bit as the bad side platoon option. So I think there's an opportunity for Shaw. To, if he can show some life with his bat to become the good side platoon option at first base and let um, Schwarber and J.D. Martinez handle DH and left field, especially in home games at Fenway, with, with all the ripple effects saying that the losing person in terms of playing time here may very well be Jaron Duran, that the uh, you know his initial transition to the majors has not gone particularly well. And they may go back to the mode they were in in center field before they called him up, where you're getting a lot of Alex Verdugo, Kike Hernandez out there and leaving left field and DH to Martinez and Schwarber and thus creating a decent amount of playing time at first base for Shaw. Again, we got to see if Shaw can hit more than a buck 50, but that's, uh, that's how this could play out. There's at least an opportunity for him. I was going to say, uh, Travis Shaw is hitting 191 this year, I think, uh, or around there, 190 for his major league season with a 279 on base, a 337 slugging. These are not the numbers that are going to inspire waves of Red Sox fans to carry Travis Shaw into the park on a sedan chair. <laughs> no, hardly. It's been a while since uh, Shaw was good. To be fair, he was good. You know, he had, he, he had a good run in Milwaukee for a couple of years there. Um, it was after the Red Sox traded him to Milwaukee for... Uh, I was trying to remember this. I believe it was Tyler Thornburg who never actually, you know, did anything for the Red Sox. Uh, but I mean, Shaw hit, you know, 63 home runs with nearly 200 RBIs from 2017, 2018 in Milwaukee. The bad news is 2017, 2018 were kind of a long time ago. And since then, as you say, he's been uh, below 200 with uh, not nearly the same power. So there's not a heck of a lot of reason to think he's suddenly going to dial back into that 2017, 18, um, production but new team new hitting coaches new analysis maybe the red sox think they can unlock something there maybe uh maybe lightning strikes that's uh probably what we're looking at here it's a bake-off between travis shaw and Jar jared duran to see which one can uh get their uh get their batting average over the mendoza line first in New York, the Yankees activated a couple of key parts of their roster. Aroldis Chapman and first baseman Anthony Rizzo come back from the injured list. They optioned uh, Jonathan Davis, an outfielder, right-hander, Brady Cor <laughs> Sorry, I messed that up. 
They also optioned outfielder Jonathan Davis and right-hander Brody Kerner to AAA. A lot of moving parts here, but I'm expecting that we would see Rizzo, Chapman, right back where they belong. Yeah, Chapman goes right back into the ninth inning. I think given how many stops and starts he's had with uh, you know the injury list this year and the uh, you know the, the struggles he's had, even in some cases when he's been active, I think it's likely that he'll be handled very carefully. Obviously, the Yankees are in the heat of a race and don't have the luxury of completely giving him the kid club treatment, but they held up pretty decently with Chapman out this most recent time with uh, Jonathan Loisaga and Chad Green picking up some saves in his absence. I know Zach Britton removed himself from the closer role there, but they but this is a deep, you know, they, they really reinforce this bullpen at the trade deadline, so they probably don't have to lean on Chapman for back-to-back days, etc., and at first base, yeah, Rizzo goes right back in there. Uh, you know, Luke Boyd probably goes, you know, maybe not quite back into the ether he was in when Rizzo first got acquired, but uh, you know, his path to playing time gets much, t- much tougher now with, uh, with Rizzo back at first base. I know Giancarlo Stanton has actually made it to the outfield a couple of times, so there's a possibility that Boyd and Rizzo could both get into the lineup, but I don't think we'll see a lot of that. And I noticed that our uh, baseball HQ. Roster analysts for the Yankees have given uh, Brett Gardner a 10% playing time bump. How does that work out? I think that's just a nod to the fact that someone's got to play center field for this team, and they haven't. They don't really have anybody who can do that. Gallo's done some of that since he arrived, I think. But uh, you know, if you look at the you know sort of the way the playing time is spread out in the outfield, the top three guys by percentage of playing time are Gallo. Judge and Gardner's the third one at sixty percent now. Those, those three, Gallo, Judge, and Gardner, are the ones who are over fifty percent playing time. And then there's, I'm counting with my eyes here, but there must be six other guys who are on the active roster who pick up anywhere between five and twenty percent of the playing time. From Stanton, of course, getting most of his time at DH, but the occasional outfield spot. Uh, Davis, who you said got sent down, etc. Um, you know, so some of these guys are shuffling on and off the roster, but I think it's a reflection that of the guys currently on the roster that, uh, you know, Gardner is the one who can, who, who they can trust to put in any of the three outfield spots without, you know, hurting himself. Davis, a former Toronto Blue Jay, just moved over to the Yankees. And just the other day, I saw him make a sensational play in center field. But I guess uh, when push comes to shove, the team is going to go with Gardner. I suspect probably just because they trust him. He's been around forever. They know what they've got. Uh, Jonathan Davis might be the kind of guy that you look at if you're thinking about next year a little more. If you're thinking about down the road, maybe this guy could be a part of the future. But for the Yankees, the future is now. Exactly. They're they're in to the metal mode and they're not in a developmental stance right now or uh, bring your kids to see our kids in September. So it's going to be a lot of Gallo, Judge, Stanton, Gardner, and that's probably about it. And Davis was a fairly streaky hitter, good speed, but not a lot of pop in Toronto. Uh, the Yankees, I'll just mention, scratched Luis Severino, the right-hander from his AAA rehab start, a recurrence of the shoulder tightness that got him on the DL in the first place. Uh, Zach Britton, interestingly, took himself out of the closer role earlier this week, and uh, they activated Gary Sanchez, so make sure you get Gary Sanchez off your reserve list and into the active roster as soon as you can. Let's move over to Kansas City. Some more bad news for shortstop 
Adalberto Mondesi and his fantasy managers. Apparently, he stopped swinging left-handed after the team's medical staff found some scar tissue they think relates to a previous oblique injury. This guy's had uh, oblique problems for a long time, Ray. Um, He's still doing fielding work. He's still throwing. He's still taking his swings right-handed. But it's now very unclear again, I think, when he'll be back from his third IL stint of the season. Yeah, this is really getting to be a tenuous situation. He's got two really chronic injuries here between the shoulder problems and now the oblique problems. And those are two parts of your body you really need working to be a good baseball player, right? Um, So that's kind of going to be an issue. And yeah, the outlook for the, I think the rest of this season is, you know, just downright pretty poor at this point. We're down to projecting him for less than half the playing time for the balance of the season, which really at this point means we're not projecting a return until, you know, early September best case. And then even if you were to become a regular then, and I think this news makes that dubious. We know that these obliques tend to be four to six week injuries, and there's no reason to think this is going to be a quick one since it's a recurring one in this case. So, and then, then there's the, I don't even think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Patrick, but then there's the other comments we got from the organization in Kansas city that basically They've come to the realization that given these ongoing and recurring and multiple different parts of the body health concerns for Mondesi, that they have gotten to the point where they don't consider him an everyday player going forward. And I think the quote from Dayton Moore was that they needed to consider him a a hundred game a year guy or something like that. And that's, uh, you know, that's a bubble burster in terms of, you know, hoping to, you know, for a guy who's still 25 and, you know, you would think. Would ha- if he ever got these injuries under control, would have a chance to get back to that 40, 50 stone base plateau we've seen. I think that, you know, even, even his organization is kind of suggesting that that ship has sailed here. I wonder if they are looking at a Fernando Tatis situation where they might say to Mondesi, I think we maybe need to play a little more in the outfield to take the wear and tear of the, uh, you know, the, the shortstop throws are a little more sometimes demanding and, and from weird positions, which would possibly put a strain on the oblique but I'm with you I I think the fact that this oblique injury seems to be you know uh, like an army routine left right left right and it never seems to get any better because the first thought I had was okay he's not swinging right-handed well put him in there as a platoon guy swinging left-handed only against right-handed pitchers and see how that works but apparently the the reason he can't swing right-handed is because of a injury to that affected his other oblique, and there's all these issues going on. I was going to ask you about where you think he was controversial this year uh, as to his likely draft position and appropriate draft position. What about next year? Boy, it's almost impossible to answer, right? Because I I could name any number of round or any dollar value, and you could come back and say that's way too risky at that price, right? (laughs) I I think there's there's almost no answer. And you know, a lot depends on, I think, A, whether we see him at all in the next seven or eight weeks and whether he ends the season, quote unquote, healthy, even for just a week or two, just to demonstrate that. And, you know, then again, then I, I think your point about a possible position change or how the Royals define his role for 2022 is a key consideration. I mean, let's not forget Bobby Witt's got to arrive sooner or later and, you know, certainly has a case to take over at shortstop. and amidst the long absences from Mondesi this year, Nicky Lopez hasn't been terrible. And, you know, it may be his stake to claim to, uh, you know, to an infield spot with Merrifield 
you know, what was goes back and forth between second base and the outfield, but they've got some flexibility where they could put him. I, I think it's entirely reasonable for the Royals to follow what you're saying and say, you know what, Mondesi, you know, come back and be you know, a center fielder or a left fielder next year. Let's see if that does anything to, you know, change the, uh, the, the health picture here, because clearly what they're doing now ain't working. When you say Nicky Lopez hasn't been terrible, it's uh, the very the definition of damning with faint praise, I think. But you know, sometimes playing time, you get the counting stats uh, a little bit. If a guy's going to pick up 550 plate appearances, all of a sudden he becomes something you ha- at least have to look at, especially in deep leagues. Uh, I mean, he's got a 347 OBP, and you know he's holding and he's holding down the shortstop position. It's you know not really a fantasy asset, although he's got 15 stolen bases with no caught stealings, which is kind of cool. Um, you know, it's, he's kind of a throwback in today's game. You don't see too many people with 325 at bats and zero home runs, but you know, but it, but it's legit growth compared to what we thought Nicky Lopez was before this. In Toronto, the outfielder George Springer, their big offseason signing, has had some injury trouble, and he's got some more. He left a game against Seattle on Saturday. Looked like he had an ankle problem after he crashed into the outfield fence, making a play. Now he's on the IL, and this is not good timing for Springer or for the Jays. Oh, it's just brutal. You hate to see these injuries when someone is just scalding hot, and the people who drafted Springer thinking he was just going to be out for a couple of weeks to start the season and then waited for him, you know, uh, to, to really take off until it was it, it was about like mid June before he actually got in the lineup regularly. But then in the last month, he was just absolutely smoking the ball. You know, last thirty one days, one hundred and one at bats, ten home runs, twenty three RBIs, and eleven thirty nine OPS. I mean, he was making up for lost time, and just to, to see him have to go back on the IL is just a just a crushing blow to the people who are finally getting some value from their uh, from their spring investment in him. I think he won the uh, American League Player of the Week twice in a row, and he was actually a candidate for the third week as well. But meanwhile, there's a roster spot open, and they gave it to a guy called Otto Lopez. And I freely admit to you, Ray, I'm not a huge prospect guy, but I know most of the main ones, and this is a name I didn't recognize. Well, I think the, <laughs> if I'm re- if I'm reading our scouting report correctly, the reason you don't uh, didn't recognize him is because you're you're dialed into the prospect scene, and he's not a prospect. <laughs> Um, you know, we rated him a 6B on our prospect scale, which casts him as a future utility player. And I think he's really there for bench depth. I mean, we, we talked before about uh, when the Jays acquired Corey Dickerson that, you know, it made a little bit of sense because he at least was a left-handed bat that could go into the outfield. And they're very, that's a, as good as that lineup is, it's very right-handed. Uh, Dickerson's the one who I believe picks up most of the playing time in Springer's absence here. Uh, I've seen him batting down in the order a couple of times, but batting sixth or seventh in this lineup is still a pretty good place to be. So maybe some short-term value for Corey Dickerson, but but I, I think less so for Otto Lopez. Dickerson has had a, a bit of a rebound this year in Toronto, actually. He's only been there for what, 14, 15 games, maybe 40 plate appearances, but he's got an 872 OPS. He's hit a couple of home runs. He's even stolen a base. He's been caught once, but... It, this could be a situation where Corey Dickerson got exactly where he needed to get to really provide decent fantasy value in that fourth or fifth outfield spot. Yeah, it's a good spot for him. He got a real, you know, we weren't sure where the playing time was going to come from, but now that the playing time is there, there's, you know, the, the team context upgrade from Miami to Toronto is, ma- is massive for him. 
And speaking of Toronto, uh, Lisa and I will be going to Toronto to watch a, a game on Thursday against the White Sox. And apparently there's a chance that the White Sox might be starting left-hander Carlos Rodon. Yeah, the, the news was really, it seemed ominous about Rodon. I think we talked about him a couple of weeks ago in terms of innings limited starters. And we, you know, he was one of the guys in this class of pitchers who we were talking about who had carried workloads that by every account seemed unsustainable, but with their teams in the playoff hunt and looking into October, that they, they really weren't going to have a choice but to keep rotting them because uh, because they, they're trying to win games. And the, the, it looked like that tension was going to resolve itself with Rodon in the worst possible way because it looked like he had just broken down. It looked like the, uh, you know, the shoulder gave out after he was so good for uh, the first two-thirds of this season. But he's bouncing back pretty quickly. And you've got to think that, if the White Sox were all that concerned, given that they're given their October aspirations, et cetera, that they would just keep him shut down a little while longer. They have the wiggle room in the division race to do that. So I'm forced to interpret that this really was a very minor thing for Rodon, and they're going to go back to him. I certainly think they'll probably manage his pitch counts carefully, et cetera. But it's a uh, you know it, it's best case scenario doesn't even really cover it for Rodon's fantasy owners. It's uh it's a, it's practically a jailhouse reprieve, right? Oh, it's really great news for anybody that has an interest in Carlos Rodon, including of course the White Sox and their fans. And the team did say he's going to come back next week. It's not like let's wait and see or anything. They pretty much said he'll be pitching sometime uh, against Toronto in a series that starts on Monday. So Good, good news for Carlos Rodon fans, as, as we said. Uh, finally, one of the features that appears, well, three times, four times a week at BaseballHQ.com, you can correct me if I'm a little overstating the case, but Facts and Flukes is a performance validation column where our analysts look at five players from one of the leagues and they take a look at how they're doing this year, and then they say, is this for real? Is this a fact or a fluke, I guess is the question. And uh, Jeff Tomich covered five guys in the American League this year. Jeff has been around for ages at BaseballHQ.com. He really knows his onions. And one of the players he looked at is up there in Boston, in your neck of the woods, Ray. Alex Verdugo's having a pretty darn good year. Yeah, he's been you know, he, he's been in a good spot in that lineup, and he's he's been pretty productive you know in terms of any reasonable standard as long as you weren't really expecting him to be you know Mookie Betts 2.0 then you know he's probably he's probably met expectations you know it's an interesting profile one that you don't see a ton of in today's game it's it's really a contact based approach he you know he puts the bat on the ball you know 84 85% of the time which is almost unheard of in this day and age it's it's the equivalent of what a 90% contact rate was when we considered that elite you know 5 8 years ago uh, you know, strikeouts have got up so much in, the, in today's game that anything in the 80s is is really quite good. And that's kind of his his baseline skill. It hasn't led to a ton of power. It's more of a smattering of power and speed with a with a good batting average foundation. And the, the primary reason for that is he hits too many balls on the ground. It's a, uh, you know, he, he hits, a, you know, 50% of his balls on the ground, which is a, 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 are balls that obviously are not going to take advantage of either the wall in Fenway or the big gaps or any of that sort of thing. So in, that's what keeps him from being a big slug guy. But, you know, there's still a lot of uh, a lot of good things happening in the skill set here. It's a sort of a box score filler. And, and again, the, the lineup's pretty good. And if you're getting on base a lot, then you're going to score runs. He's got 70 runs this year, which is a good total. Uh, 
for uh, Major League Baseball, put him up among uh, probably the top 10%. He's stolen five bases, only been caught once. Uh, you know who he reminds me of as far as uh, production is J.D. Drew, but maybe with a little less power. Yeah, that's probably a good one. A uh, little less power, a little more speed, but the, uh, the the plate approach is very similar. Drew was uh, you know, always deep into a lot of counts, and uh, you know, Verdugo might might not walk quite that much, but the uh, you know the the ball in play, play you know, play c- controlling the strike zone as a uh, as a foundational skill is still. I, I can see why you would draw that comparison. For One thing that Jeff Thomas pointed out, however, is that. The OPS versus left-handed pitching for Verdugo is pretty skimpy at 505 this year, and there's the possibility if he can't get that number up that the Red Sox might be looking for alternatives when they're facing especially tough left-handers, which could mean more bench time for Verdugo if he doesn't pick that up. Yeah, that's that's a fair concern. I think if the Red Sox had anybody who could um, take that those at bats from him in the right from the right side, he would be more prone to that. Um, you know, but the uh, that that platoon split is, I believe, something of a more recent uh, development this year. In twenty, you know, twenty twenty was obviously a tiny sample size, but going back to twenty nineteen as well, uh, you know, he had held held up pretty well. So, um, you know, they're all small sample sizes when you're trying to measure those lefty lefty matchups. So, I, I I could see him losing at bats going forward from the uh, in those left left matchups if that trend continues. But it's um, you know the Red Sox, have, frankly, have not had anybody to push them there because plugging somebody like Marwin Gonzalez into into the lineup just for platoon purposes was a guy who was just as bad against lefties, but just happened to stand in the other the other batter's box. Jeff Thomas summarized his an- analysis by calling Verdugo a high floor player who should provide enough counting stats to be a dependable contributor, and I think that's exactly right. Yeah, you know, especially in the lineup context, him, you know, he t- typically bats second against righties in that Boston lineup. In between, you know, Hernandez is mostly the leadoff hitter, but right in front of Martinez, Bogarts, Endeavors, and he's. You mentioned that run total, and he was really just uh, he's making hay in that spot. And as you know, I, I think there's every reason to think he's going to stay there, you know, for the long term. He's a he's a cornerstone of this lineup at this point, and it's uh, it, it's really a, a good fit for him. And I, I think the uh, that that high floor is really pretty secure. And just to stretch the uh, J.D. Drew analogy a little bit more, I remember hearing Theo Epstein was asked why uh, all the Boston fans and baseball fans in general uh, underestimated J.D. Drew, and uh, he said, you know, he's just a great all-around ball player. He never makes a mistake, and he runs the bases really well, and he's a good offensive contributor. And I, I don't watch that many Boston games, but I don't see Alex Verdugo making base running mistakes. I see him taking the extra base. I see him playing really good, sound baseball that leads to good, productive outcomes that don't necessarily get reflected in a fantasy baseball sort of context but nonetheless are valuable to the team, which means he's going to play, even if, uh, as we mentioned, he might be struggling against left-handed pitching, then he'll figure that out as well, just like J.D. Drew did along the way. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the uh, the, 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 the Epstein quote about Drew, Drew that sticks with me is that he, he said, when he said, when, he said he, when they signed Drew, he asked, you know, or shortly afterwards, they asked him what Drew brought to the table, and he just said, he does not make outs, you know, meaning that, you know, the high on base percentage to the good base running, not giving away outs on the bases. And also, you know, being a, uh, a strong, a strong defender. Verdugo brings a lot of those same things for sure. 
One of my big gets uh, this year in drafts, Ray, was picking up Jonathan Scope in fairly late rounds, and I thought I'd really done myself a, a favor. And then by the end of April, I thought, oh my goodness, I've made a huge error. He wasn't even batting 200. But boy, he has really turned it on ever since. And I guess the question that Jeff Tomich asked is, Jonathan Scope's rebound a fact or a fluke? Yeah, it's. Uh, I had a similar experience with Scope. I had him on a few teams and not only felt bad about it, but you know, in some of the shallower leagues, like the, uh, like I have him on a on a twelve team mix right now. And to be honest, you know, given how he started and given the free agent pool available in that league, I probably held on too long. I probably should have gotten away from him before the end of April. It would have been the you know, the percentage play, but I. I was more patient than I should have been. And boy, as you say, has it really paid off? He's been terrific over the last few months. Um, in this analysis, Jeff Tomich does point out that his batting average is out a, probably out a little bit of over his skis. He's been flirting with uh, 300 for you know, for a while now. I think his batting average is currently about 288, but his expected batting average is down around 257. So he's been a little fortunate in that regard. But the skill set is really quite good o- overall. You know, he's... Uh, you know, he, his contact rate is a tick below that 80% mark we were talking about with Verdugo, but it's still a decent, sk- decent skill. And his hard contact is about league average, barrels the ball decently. So the, you know, the power metrics are you know, generally average with a lot of, again, a big playing time denominator you know, in the lineup every day and up in, the, up in the lineup in a good spot. So he's getting a lot of at-bats and a little bit of um, – a little bit of a boost from home run per fly is really propping him up here. And 18 home runs is, you know, on, on track for, you know, the low twenties, if not 25 is a, is a very productive season from a, uh, from a middle infielder. here. I guess, uh, I, I don't know that he'll retain his middle infield status for 2022. He's been playing mostly at first base this year. I haven't looked at his position setup, but uh, I did look up his uh, record from May 1st till uh, last night, and uh, listen to this, a 303 batting average, an 836 OPS, and if you scale it to 162 games based on the 100 and so that he's played, 93 games that he's played so far, you're looking at a season of 28 homers, 105 RBIs, uh, 98 runs, and that 836 OPS, uh, not not too bad. If he stole a few bases, it'd be even better. Yeah, but a, you know, a four-category middle infielder is, uh, you know, that you could have had for you know, I don't know what you got him for PD in your drafts, but you know, in south of round twenty or yeah. you know, uh, under five dollar bid or maybe even a reserve, that's uh, you know, massive profit on your investment. And the last guy I wouldn't mind your comments on Ray in Jeff Tomich's facts and flukes coverage is Mark Canna, who has been providing a lot of value, but not in the way we expected. Yeah, he's sort of reinvented himself and you know, boon for the A's because he uh you know, especially now with with Ramon Laureano out for the rest of the year, uh, you know, Laureano missed a lot of time with injury in the middle of the season to begin with, and Connor was a big reason why uh, they didn't miss a beat there, both from his productivity and his ability to pivot over to center field to absorb that. Um, when Connor broke out in 2019, it was really a power base breakout. You know, he hit 270 with 26 home runs and just oh, just to take over 400 at bats in 2019. And it really looked like he was emerging as a power hitter. To your point, we've seen less of that this year. And this, this year, it's really been more of a uh, balanced power-speed blend. Only 12 home runs and almost as many at-bats this year. So the power is down a decent chunk. But he's thrown in 11 stolen bases. And he's probably even been a little bit um, 
unlucky in terms of the batting average. He's got a 244 batting average right now, which is, uh, you know, but is actually a little bit below his expected batting average, which is closer to 256. So, you know, he's been a little bit dinged in terms of both uh, times on base. Maybe the stolen base total could have been a little bit higher, uh, but maybe a couple of, in Oakland, a couple of those would be home runs have landed in gloves. And that is, uh, that, that has dinged them in both batting average and power. So th- th- there may have been a little, even a little more beat on this bone. Maybe we'll see a little bit of it before the end of September. Tough park to hit home runs in just in general. But overall, I like the the description that you offered there of a player who has reinvented himself. And it seems like he looked around and said, you know, maybe my power skills were more lucky than good in 2019 when he had 26 home runs. But running is something you can do even if you're not – you know, a super speedy guy, If as long as you know what you're doing. And, of course, the uh, A's, I haven't read anything to this effect, but I know they get Ricky Henderson in from time to time to advise guys who want to increase their stolen base count and show them how to do it rather than just to rely on pure speed. I wonder if Mark Cannon has been benefiting from that. Yeah, I really would not be surprised. It's an excellent point. And then, you know, even looking at the, uh, you know, at that transformation from, uh, you know, 20 plus home run producer to a more balanced approach. You know, that, that also manifests itself in his, uh, in his spray charts and his ground ball, line drive, fly ball rate. His, his, his fly ball rate is down, uh, you know, 5% from uh, 2019, 8% from the short season last year. He's only hitting 36% fly balls. But the notable thing about it is he's turned those fly balls exclusively into line drives. So it really does seem like it's a, um, you know, maybe what you said with the ballpark is accurate. And even though he was lifting the ball over the fence with some regularity in 2018, 19, he's decided that, you know, that's a, that, that's a loser's game. And he's uh, kind of gone contrarian on the launch angle revolution is what it's, what it looks like a little bit to me. And maybe contrarian is not a bad thing to be when you're not a, a superstar who can rely on that kind of thing. I looked up his sprint speed on baseballsavant.com and he's in the 69th percentile, which means, you know, he's fast, but not super fast. So I, I think this is a, a, one of those situations where you got a, a veteran player who's been around the baseball for a number of years now and has just figured out that it's possible to steal bases just by being good at stealing bases. Uh, of course, you're not going to get Rowdy Tellas out there, uh, you know, sprinting around the base pass because he just doesn't have enough speed in that regard. But maybe 69th, 70th percentile is good enough. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and looking forward, you know, it's interesting because that, um, that that batting average versus expected batting average gap might be what creates a buying opportunity this offseason. You know, this is he's showing he can kind of reach the double digits in both power and speed. But the guys who can do that with a sub-250 batting average, you know, that, that, that's not that short a list. You, you, you could find those guys sort of throughout, throughout the player pool. But he doesn't necessarily belong in that, in that um, you know, below 250 batting average per his XBA. So a little bit of regression next year could put him into 250, put him up toward 250 or even 260. And that, of course, puts him on base more often, which gives him more chances to run and, you know, boosts the runs and RBIs. You know, it, it might be that where he, wherever he ends up for this year is understating a little bit what his future outlook is. Although we got to be a little bit careful. You know, he is 32 going on 33. So, uh, you know, 33 year olds, we don't want to project too much of a, uh, a spike in stolen bases because the uh, speed is, of course, a young man's game. 
Well, as I said, speed is a young man's game, but it could be that base stealing is not. And one other thing Fair. about Mark Canna that should be interesting to us, especially in on-base leagues, is he's been pretty steadily increasing his walk rates. Uh, he's gone from sort of the 8% range in 2018. He's up around 13, 15, 13 the last few years. Seems like he's figured out how to get on base, which of course creates more stolen base opportunities. And I think uh, at BaseballHQ.com we have him down at an 11% stolen base opportunity rate, which I call go rate. He's running twice as often as he has in years past. Something's going on there, and I think it's something that's maybe sustainable for the next couple of years anyway. I mean, I don't expect him to be, you know, sprinting around the bases at 37, but 33 is still young in, in modern baseball, I think. Yeah, you're right. And the the, um, the the walk rate increasing as a player gets into his 30s is, of course, a, a fairly typical progression. And, you know, he's now in that sweet spot where, you know, he's building up that on-base percentage, which is going to keep him at the top of the lineup, which again continues to give him opportunities to run. So, you know, as long as he's got the intersection of the plate skills, the on-base percentage, and the sufficient speed and base running savvy to, uh, you know, to, to get those double-digit stolen bases, that's it, what we're saying, I think, in the end is this is a pretty darn valuable package. I think it's a very darn valuable package, and of course that raises the uh, question of, how will it be valued in next year's drafts? Uh, people will be looking at it and trying to determine if it's a fact or a fluke. And personally, I hope they think it's a fluke because I think it's a fact and those are the kind of arbitrage opportunities that we always are looking for when we're making our draft day decisions. Uh, Ray, thanks a million for helping us out. Very interesting session as always, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. Looking forward to it, Petey. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it'll be part two of our feature expert interview with Matt Dodge, playing Time Tomorrow roster analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Matt's coming to the plate for his second turn next on Baseball HQ Radio. But before we do that... Remember to watch for the next edition of Baseball HQ Radio. We've rearranged our planned expert interview with the baseball professor, Andy Andres, so you'll want to check that out next Friday. And while we're here, let me remind you about First Pitch Arizona, where you can get a competitive edge for 2022 and have a ton of fun doing it. It's the 26th edition of Baseball HQ's signature fantasy baseball getaway, live and in person, October 14th through 17th at the Sheraton Mesa Wrigleyville West, just a few steps from beautiful Sloan Park. First Pitch Arizona is three full days packed with activities like fantasy workshops, drafts and contests, seminars covering scouting sabermetrics and strategy, my favorite, talking baseball around the fire pit with some of the best in the business, and of course going to Arizona Fall League ball games, featuring some of the best and brightest rising stars from the minor leagues, from the best seat in the stadium, if they're letting fans into the stadium, so we're not 100% sure about that. Tickets to games are just the beginning of the registration package. You'll also get free copies of Ron Chandler's 2022 Baseball Forecaster and Baseball HQ's 2022 Minor League Baseball Analyst just as soon as they come off the press. A Thursday evening welcome reception will let you hobnob with the experts and your fellow attendees. There's food, a free Saturday lunch event, free hot buffet breakfast for hotel guests, and there's usually some nibbles at that Thursday evening reception as well. And of course, all kinds of handouts, instant freebies and prizes, not to mention as many AFL foul balls as you want to run after. 
The First Pitch Arizona webpage is up for you to get all the latest skinny on First Pitch Arizona 2021, including event schedules, registration information and discounts, and hotel discounts. Just go to baseballhq.com slash first hyphen pitch hyphen Arizona or save yourself all that typing hyphens and just go to baseballhq.com's homepage. There's a big orange logo over there on the right-hand side. Just click on that and it'll take you right there. Previous attendees call First Pitch Arizona the best weekend of the year. And I hope to see you there. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Matt Dodge, playing time tomorrow roster analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Matt, welcome back. Thank you. For a lot of fantasy managers, the candle of competitive consideration is flickering at best. So a lot of us are turning cautiously towards our 2022 planning. How do you think the news versus noise filtering that we talked about earlier is different when we switch from the short term, like playing time tomorrow, which is a couple of weeks, maybe a month, towards trying to assess a full season still eight months away? Well, you know, there's certainly a lot of um, uncertainty, and we we need to learn to embrace the uncertainty, but we also need to to work with what we know and uh, try to build trends from the past several years to see which way we can um, value or consider the value of players for the coming year. One of the considerations I start to think about is which players to look at for those critical first couple of rounds. We've heard for years now that the common expert advice, reduce risk in the top rounds, but after this season with all the top guys falling by the wayside, I think some people might be changing their minds. But then I checked, Matt, and the, this, this season, the first round players by ADP have been actually by far the likeliest to provide production uh, commensurate with their level in the next most solid rounds are rounds two and round three. What are we to learn from the way 2021 has shaken out insofar as how we're going to rank players for the rounds next year? Well, I, I have to come up with a disclaimer on this. I am not a round guy. Well, even if we don't look at rounds, we can still think of this in terms of auction value, right? Uh, Ronald Acuna is going to be a top dollar guy or was a top dollar guy in 2021. And then the question becomes, is he also a top dollar guy in 2022? Or maybe the better question is, how are you going to adjust Ronald Acuna's estimated auction price, the price that you would go to max on a guy like Acuna? So let's go through the first round guys from ADP in 2021 drafts, and you can just give us your short take on where you think they're going to find themselves in drafts next year or where you think they ought to be valued next year. Let's start with Ronald Acuna. Well, I think Acuna might drop to the third or fourth round since um, he may or may not be ready for opening day. And that might be enough, depending on when teams would draft, that they might be skeptical of taking him in the first round since it may be unclear how much time he might miss. Risk avoidance for sure in that case. Fernando Tatis, a similar situation. He's had a lot of injury trouble and now maybe a position switch. Well, I think that's that's okay. I think that the, the injury trouble doesn't appear to be long-lasting. I think he's still a first-rounder, and if he's in... If he, even if he's in the outfield in 2022, he's got dual position eligibility, which would be a plus. Juan Soto? He, he's, he's a solid first rounder for me. 
a guy who has been really risk-free for the last few years in the first round has been Mookie Betts, but all of a sudden, partially because I drafted him, of course, uh, Mookie Betts has had <laughs> uh, significant injury trouble this year. He's been on the aisle twice now with a hip problem, and my worry would be if I was looking at Mookie Betts for down the road for future years is that guys with bad hips don't tend to steal a lot of bases. No, they don't, and he may lose some value for that. I think he might slip to the second round next year, but the rest of the package, you know, he's still a four-category producer and a strong one at that, so just just one round drop. There was a lot of controversy this year about where to put the starting pitchers, and when fantasy managers decided they were going to go pitcher uh, in the first round. Jacob deGrom was the choice, and for the longest time, it looked like the best choice. He was, I think, leading all of baseball in fantasy value uh, because of all the strikeouts and the incredibly low ratios with fairly significant innings. All of a sudden, Jacob deGrom looks like a question mark. Yeah, he does, but you know the, the body of work is so good, and it's been good for a while and he's been able to avoid injuries before now. So I would still take the chance that he can rebound after the off season and be Jacob deGrom again. Would you take deGrom or Garrett Cole if you were of a mind to have a starting pitcher that early? I would take deGrom first. I had dropped Cole down to the second round in, in my analysis and um, he's, he's on the edge for sure. He might be at the turn but I, I had him in the second round. How about Mike Trout? I'm in. I'll take that chance. Um, part, part of the problem is, of course, that I'm, I'm located in the greater, greater Philadelphia metropolitan area, as, as was Mike Trout where he grew up and where he goes to Eagles games. And it's just hard to find anybody around here who would not take trout in the first round i think i might but it would have to be towards the end of the first round a guy i really like is trey turner who once again has delivered first round value and i think this is not his first kick at the can it looks like he's really establishing himself as maybe a top five type of guy oh i think so i think so particularly with the way stolen bases have been heading and in, in an aggregate level i think he's the one and i, I had him as a solid first round pick i'd, I'd be glad to get him you know, another guy who also delivers real consistent first-round value and has been, I think, a second-rounder by value this year and never seems to get the the um, love that he deserves is Jose Ramirez in Cleveland. Yeah, he does. He does not steal the bases, though. And, um, I mean, he's he, he's stolen, I guess it's 10 or 11 right now. He went through a six- or seven-week span where he didn't steal any. And, you know, he's now... He's now seeing more games at DH uh, recently, so they're trying to save him a little bit. And he is, oh, is he 29 or 30? He's right around 30. So the legs may start going there. And and I would put him behind Turner. I think Jose Ramirez is still a solid first-rounder, but he's less likely, in my opinion, he won't give you the, the 20, 30, 40 stolen bases that you can get from someone like a Turner. Jose Ramirez will turn 29 on September the 17th. Another guy that okay. never seems to get a lot of respect for the amount of production that he provides is Freddie Freeman, who's also having another terrific year. Yes, he is. And he's one of those guys who I try to roster whenever I can. I think I've got him in the 
in the HQ Staff Writers League, and I've got him in my uh, Eastern Division League as well. And he's a solid contributor and often often doesn't get the respect uh, that some of the other big names do, do but he's a he's he's stable and good. Surprisingly, seven stolen bases this year, and I bet if you asked your average fantasy owner just off the top of his head to say, how many more stolen bases do you think Jose Ramirez has than Freddie Freeman? They'd probably say, I don't know, 15, but the uh, actual number's closer to three or four, I think, which is quite a difference. Now we have a couple of guys who really haven't performed at all well this year, and I'll, I'll name three of them, and you can tell me what you think of their likelihood of rebound, and that's uh, Christian Yelich in Milwaukee, Trevor Story in Colorado, or wherever he ends up next year, I suppose, and really Cody Bellinger in Los Angeles. Yes. Um, I, I, feel, I, I feel more bullish on Yelich uh, being able to recover. I mean, this was a guy who, if I remember correctly, was battling, battling for a batting title down to the last day or two of the season a few years back. And, and you know, it just mystifies me that he's had the struggles that he's had this year. Uh, Bellinger, <laughs> Bellinger, I took a chance on on the trading deadline saying, he can't be this bad for the rest of the year. He's got to wake up sometime. And that was not one of the, the better trades that I made. He's, he's still struggling and it's unclear to me what the problem is and what the fix is going to be. I, it, it, I'm mystified. So I'm not, I'm not confident in a rebound from him. Story, I think will be okay. I think he'll, he'll still be in the first few rounds. Um, depending on whether he goes, whether he stays in Colorado or whether he goes to some, some awful place that depresses, um, depresses all his batting skills. But, you know, he, he might be a, a third rounder or a second rounder, depending on where he show, ends up. I don't think there's anything structurally wrong. And, I don't, and from an age perspective, there's plenty of good years left there. And finally, a couple of pitchers, one from Cleveland, another guy who was from Cleveland. Shane Bieber hasn't been Shane Bieber quite, and Trevor Bauer, of course, has a lot of question marks. Well, well Bieber hasn't been. <laughs> Bieber, you know, he, he's going to be okay, I believe. If, if you look at his, his recent work, he's, he's going to be just fine. And I think he's also at the end of the first round. Uh, when it, when it comes around to 2022, uh, Bauer, I've got no idea. Um, you know, I did that look of, uh, this year, you know, year to date versus projected for the future. And of course the projection for the future is just about zero. So, you know, maybe he's, he's in the fourth round, the fifth round next year. It's really hard to tell. And I'm not sure whether there'll be any, lingering repercussions that affect his ability to play at the beginning of the year. Well, there's a decent chance, I think, that he won't be playing at all, frankly. And I, I think that would be a worry if I was drafting, you know, tomorrow or next week. I think I might give Trevor Bauer a wide pass. I mean, it could be that all of the legal ramifications and issues that surround him will be settled by the time we have to make draft decisions next spring. But, boy, if it was day after tomorrow, I don't think I could uh, I could 
maybe even in conscience, uh, take Trevor Bauer. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Moving on to the second round, some surprises here, and I'm curious mostly what you think about their chances of not only repeating, but maybe sneaking up to replace some of the guys who are falling out of the first round. And let's start with a couple of pitchers, you Darvish and Lucas Giolito. I, I don't like um, either of those, those two for, for climbing back up into the first round. Uh, this is, this is the third back. It, this year is the third back issue for Darvish in his last six seasons. So I'm just not confident that that's a, a chronic thing that will ever go away. And for that, I couldn't put him up in the first round as for, um, Giolito. Oh, Giolito, his, his results this year, just, just sort of seem to be a little, a little higher than I would expect, you know, maybe a second or a third round guy. I'm just not sure that he's got enough there to, to keep it in, in, in the first round. If you asked me for a pitcher in the first round, I'd say it would be more likely to be Max Scherzer, depending on where he lands. What about Walker Bueller, who's having a terrific year? Or oh, oh Bueller's already in. I, I got Bueller in for sure. Scherzer was where I was maybe on the fence over, but I, I still like him over Giolito as another pitcher in the first round. Switching to the position players, uh, Bryce Harper has kind of been a disappointment over the years, but uh, this year he seems to have turned it around a bit. He certainly has been more consistent. He, he's been more consistent. He's in a he's in a better state, I think, in in Philadelphia. Goodness knows he's getting a lot of love from the fans up there. I've been up to see Phillies games twice, and and there, there's just a lot of love for him. And I think he feeds on that a bit. I I think he's a first rounder again. How about uh, Francisco Lindor, who has struggled, to say the least, in New York? Oh, he has. And you know, I know he's young and he should heal, heal well, but he wasn't. I don't know how his, how his injury timing coincided with his performance problem, whether everything, whether his problems before or the injury that he just couldn't live through anymore or whether this is whether there was a decline there and then the injury hit. So I'm I'm cautious about Lindor and think he's going to drop down a few more rounds as a result. Manny Machado and Bo Bichette, a couple of infielders. Bichette's having a tremendous year and Machado's having a better year than I think a lot of people thought he was going to have. Yeah, he is. Um I think Bichette offers a a speed dimension that Machado does not and you know, in the for what it's worth, and I've seen both of them play. I feel like Bichette's a better defender, and I think that that granted it's shortstop versus third base, I guess. But uh, maybe Machado goes back to short if Tatis ends up in the outfield. I haven't I haven't looked to see whether that's been happening or not. Uh, but um, I, I I like Bichette a little bit over Machado, but I think Machado's a second rounder. I'm going to talk a little later with Ray Murphy about Adalberto Mondesi and the bad injury news that we just received about him, but he was quite a controversial character coming into this year. Given everything that he's gone through, how uh, it's not a question as it, whether he is going to fall. The question is going to be how much. Uh, recently, a couple of weeks ago, in Playing Time Tomorrow, uh, I covered a story from, the, from Dayton Moore who announced that from their perspective, Adalberto Montesi is a hundred game player and that's all they're willing to count on him for 
in seasons going forward because of his injury history. And, you know, as a result of him playing hard, there, there's an injury history that takes a while to recover from. So if he's only a hundred game guy and as a hundred game guy, he gets, you know, 350, 400 at bats, you know, that's not a second round guy. Even if he does steal 40 bases, he's probably a, you know, a third round guy. And finally, I'm curious about what you think of, of a couple of pitchers who've really disappointed out of the second round. Aaron Nola has returned 17th round value, and Luis Castillo, notwithstanding his recent much improved streak, has really uh, been terrible. He's, I think, 53rd round type of value by his uh, full 2021 dollar value, um, 51 round deficit, you could call it. Do you like Nola or Castillo for 2022? I like Nola a little better. Uh, I think Castillo will rebound, but I think Castillo might rebound to, you know, seventh, eighth round kind of a guy. I mean, it is just the one year. Uh, Nola and, and Nola has a big body of work as well. Uh, so, so I think, you know, maybe Nola's dropped down a couple of rounds, but I, I still like Nola over Castillo in that combination. I'm curious what you think about maybe a couple of guys who are in the first round this year by dollar value who weren't in the first round by ADP and how likely they are to maybe hold on to their spot. Uh, we mentioned Bo Bichette, but there's a couple of other Toronto Blue Jays in that first round value list, Teoscar Hernandez and Marcus Semyon, who might not be playing in Toronto next year, but has certainly played well the last couple of years. Oh, Semyon is a, is a solid guy. I'm not sure he's a first rounder. Um, you know, some of that depends on team context and, and how much playing time he's going to get. I think he's been very fortunate to get as many as much playing time as he did in Toronto this year, but and his skills have backed it up. But depending on where he goes, he might struggle to get that much playing time. Tiasco uh, Hernandez, on the other hand, you know, there's, there's I think both of them benefit from the ongoing struggles that Kevin Biggio has had in Toronto. Had Biggio been healthy, uh, both of those players might have seen their at-bat totals cut as Biggio took more of a role. We mentioned some of the pitchers who might be first-round material, but we didn't mention Brandon Woodruff in Milwaukee, who's having a really good year. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I, I pulled those numbers out uh, from my... Um, from my league and coverage perspective, I'm much more tuned into the American League guys than than I am on a National League guys. But I was as I was preparing for this, I looked at those numbers and it was like, oh yeah, he's a first rounder. I know you had him in the third round of the of the, um, the starter sheet here, but I would take Woodruff in the first round based on what he's done so far this year. Brandon Woodruff's accomplishments, he was a third rounder by ADP, so it's not like, like the hugest jump in the world for him to, to promote himself into the first round, just two two rounds. But how about Kevin Gosman in San Francisco, who's like plus eight? He's a first round performer who was drafted in the ninth round. I'm sure he's on a lot of teams' rosters that are doing well in their leagues. But the question is, after many, many years, admittedly in some pretty dire situations, but after a lot of years of mediocre performance, how much of a fact versus fluke is Kevin Gosman, do you think, in 2021? And how promotable for 2022? 
I haven't, I haven't dug into it that hard. I saw a lot of Kevin Gausman as he was coming up in Baltimore as my wife is a Baltimore native and we go down to see games at Camden Yard frequently. And it just turns out that for many of the occasions we go down there, we end up seeing the giants on their swing through the, through the East coast. So um, I've, I've seen Gausman a few times and He'll hold on to some of that. And, you know, he had the prospect pedigree when he came in with the Orioles. And sometimes it just takes longer in the right setting. I don't think he'll fall down to, to those prop, those depths where he was before. But it is, it is somebody that I'll look at very favorably when it comes to draft time next year. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Matt Dodge, a playing time tomorrow columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And Matt, uh, I lined up the 10 biggest overproducers so far this year in 2021, and I'd like your opinion on how likely they are to repeat in 2022, not not moving up another 27 rounds, but their ability to stay in the round that they've achieved this year. Uh, let's start with some of the position players. Uh, Adam Frazier has had a really good year. Despite not re- really being a power guy, he's been a pretty good contributor. He has been a good contributor, and, and I, I look through the I look through his numbers and maybe he drops a little bit, but he's, he's solid. He's, he's a good target. And, and, you know, if you could get his, his ADP was in the 27th round and he's got fifth round value, you know, if you can get him in the 10th round, go for it. I would, I suspect he might not go as low as the 10th round, but it would be interesting to see. Uh, Josh Rojas kind of wasn't really even drafted in most leagues. And here he is a, a ninth round value. How about Josh Rojas for 2022? His success looks to be uh, at an unsustainable hit rate. So when you normalize his hit rate for what you would expect to see there, I think he falls a lot. I, I, I'm much more in on Frazier than I would be on Rojas. How about Frazier's former Pittsburgh teammate, Brian Reynolds? Uh, Reynolds, I'd be willing to give Reynolds Reynolds a mulligan for 2020. When you look at his his work his work to date in 2021, and you compare that to 2019, they are very similar lines. And so I think while he's second round value now, I don't know that he he gets that high, but he he's he could be a fifth rounder, sixth rounder. I think he I think he holds those gains. Dave Potts the. Uh very successful fantasy player, daily DFS player, told me here at Baseball HQ Radio that Brian Reynolds is the kind of player he tries to draft every single year because they're always undervalued. Playing in a sort of backwater, bad team situation and not getting a lot of publicity, people just forget that a guy like Brian Reynolds exists. But Brian Reynolds is actually a pretty good ball player, and and those are the kind of opportunities that really a lot of people should be more aware of. Uh, Willie Adamas in Tampa was headed towards what looked like a pretty bad year. And then he gets traded to Milwaukee and all of a sudden he looks like a world beater. He's uh, up into the fifth round, despite a 22nd round ADP. Can he stay in the fifth round or move up? I don't know that he moves up from the fifth round. Uh, I think he's a solid guy in the first, in the, in the round, in, in the fifth round. You know, I, 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 I'm enjoying the ride with Willie Adamas on one of my teams this year. And, um, the lineup, you know, I think I think the fact that he knows he's in the lineup every day in Milwaukee, uh, I think the ballpark and, and just kind of the team context there, 
that that's the that's the magic that unlocked um, the performance that I think we're seeing this year. And I'm I think that the, he's he's solid right there. And I hope I get to have him on some of my teams next year. And finally, a couple of veterans, both drafted in the 22nd round by ADP, both in the fifth round by value in 2021. Joey Votto in Cincinnati and Avasil Garcia in Milwaukee. It's nice to see these old guys doing well when you're an old guy yourself, like me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, same here. Um, Yeah, I, I I think the age difference makes a difference here. Avaseo. Avasail, I was surprised to see that he's only still about 30, and it seems like he's been around forever. Uh, I think that he's a better chance to hold on to that kind of range of performance than the 37-year-old Votto, even though you know, we may be saying the same thing about Joey Votto when he is 40. Uh, I just, based on the age, I'm more likely to focus in it Garcia and would take Votto gladly a few rounds later. I think what's interesting about Votto is that he seems really to have completely revised how he approaches his plate appearances for the longest time. He was a put the ball in play, you know, smack it when you get a chance kind of guy in the middle of the order. And uh, I think he peaked with Cincinnati a few years ago at a 36 home run pace, but typically, um, and I think also in the mid thirties, a few years before that, but typically more like a mid twenties type of guy or high twenties type of guy. And here he is again at a much more advanced age at 26 home runs with 76 RBIs, uh, and his on-base percentage, which used to be always in the 400s, is now down to 375. He's striking out quite a bit more, walking a little bit less, but it seems like a, a reinvention of skill that uh, I find pretty interesting. Let's move over to the pitchers, Matt. Uh, the 10 biggest overproducers, let's start with uh, Carlos Rodon of Chicago. We just got news that he's going to be back in the lineup next week. I'll talk with Ray Murphy about that, but how do you like Carlos Rodon as a repeater? Um, I, I worry about, you know, he's, he's on the IL, so I worry about health and his health history has not been great. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, I don't think I would take him in the third round next year. I would wait until you know, some other pitchers came off the board. He's certainly been dominant when he has pitched, but I'm just, the injury history gives me a little red flag. We talked about Kevin Gosman in San Francisco. Another reclamation project the Giants have turned into a gem is Anthony DiSclefani, seventh round value and a 17 round profit. How likely is DiSclefani to maintain? And I'm curious what you think about the change in team context that has clearly affected these two pitchers whether maybe we need to give some credit to San Francisco for having a knack for this particular kind of of reclamation I think the team context there is is important and I think whoever that pitching uh, guru is in San Francisco working with Gaussman and now working with DiSclefani I think that there must be something there and I think that there's another good chance that Isclafani, while he's, you know, maybe he's around the seventh, eighth, ninth round. Uh, he's certainly not a 24th round guy. And uh, I'd be glad to have him in that range. The pitching coach seems to be a guy named Andrew Bailey, 
who was a big league reliever back in the day and uh, whatever they're doing there. And I've heard a lot about what San Francisco's doing, Matt, and it's not just one guy. They have more coaches than any team in big league baseball, and they have all kinds of innovative technical approaches and health approaches. They were one of the first teams to talk about sleeping and all of those kinds of things. I think they're really onto something, and I'm a big believer in finding teams that seem to be doing things differently and more correctly and kind of leaning into what they're doing to recommend players. Uh, moving along, though, how about Adam Wainwright, a real established veteran in uh, in St. Louis? He's like clockwork, isn't he? Age 39 and, and still turning still turning out decent numbers. I, you know, it, I can't I can't commit to taking him in a fifth round, even though he's returning fifth round value. But if he's around near the end of the draft because nobody else wants him, I'll take that take that chance that he can do it once again. And finally, let's close with a couple of pitchers in central divisions, Freddie Peralta in the Milwaukee and uh, Emmanuel Classe in Cleveland. You know, I think Peralta, while he, I don't think, I'm not taking him in the second round, you know, he's at age 25. He's the growth He's in the growth phase of his career. Uh, pitchers usually take a little longer to get stable. And I think that he's just fine. And I'd be glad to have him in the, you know, in the late sin- single digit rounds. Uh, I think he, I think he's a fine pickup. Plus a, his value is so saves driven uh, unless you're in a league with saves that plus holds. So you can mitigate that um, arrangement where, the one closer gets all the saves and another closer gets the, gets the, or another co-closer like Karen Jack, you know, it takes that kind of format for him to hold that kind of value and deliver, you know, mid, mid to early double digit range in value. So um, that's, that's really more of a league context than it is. I mean, his skills are outstanding. So whatever, whatever your format treats however your format treats relievers um he should be one of the first names off the board you're listening to baseball hq radio patrick davitt with matt dodge from baseballhq.com playing time tomorrow columnist and matt i like to wrap up these discussions by looking at slumps pumps dumps and jumps that's for the rest of this season let's start with the slump a player struggling but worth hanging on to i spent all my money on joey gallo uh after his free agent move and he's Disappointed with a, a 155 batting average since joining the Yankees. Uh, so I guess I'm invested in him and I have to keep him, but I also have to believe that he's going to turn that batting around, batting average around a little bit. And I certainly like his left-handed swing with the short porch in Yankee Stadium. Always a high OBP guy, not always a high batting average guy. So good luck to you on that. Uh, how about a pump, a player overachieving and worth selling high while the selling's good? Right now. Who sounds good to me is Bobby Dahlbeck of the, the Red Sox. I mean, he's a right-handed guy, so he's generally limited to uh, matchups against left-handed pitchers. Um, but he, he's on a streak right now, and so that streak to me isn't sustainable. He's had some contact issues um, throughout his brief career, so I'd be willing to to take the chance, particularly as, as the Red Sox sort through who they're going to have first base at first base over the next few weeks. 
Well, they just acquired Travis Shaw. I'm going to talk to Ray Murphy about that. Uh, Joey Gallo and Bobby Dahlbeck, you like your strikeouts, unfortunately, <laughs> on the hitting side here. <laughs> How about a dump? That's an underachiever you think is a true underachiever and worth replacing. Well, you know, there was a, there was a lot of hype a couple years ago years ago about Willens Estadio, uh, La Tortuga in Minnesota. And, you know, he was an interesting guy. He had catcher eligibility, but was playing at a bunch of positions and was providing a decent batting average. And that seems to have vaporized. So the excitement is no longer there. Uh, He's no longer catcher eligible and he's just not doing enough as a utility player to justify keeping him around. And we'll do our jumps, a jump hitter, somebody that you would target as a trade or a free agent acquisition if he's available in your league. Okay. Well, again, I'm, I'm working in deep leagues. So, um, and my, my guys in deep leagues are a couple of middle infielders who are lucking into a bit more playing time than they would usually see. And I'll give you two quick ones. One of them is Ernie Clement, who looks to be the primary shortstop or primary second baseman right now in Cleveland. And um, Tyler Wade, who they keep finding ways to get him in the lineup uh, as the Yankees cycle through COVID, COVID issues and nagging injuries and so on. These guys seem to be getting in the lineup more often than expected and are contributing more than one might expect. And finally, Matt, how about a jump pitcher or two? Uh, well, I, I'll, I'll hold it to one, and the one that jumps out at me is Daniel Lynch. Uh, he had a horrible Major League debut uh, in May, and, and this is a guy I saw pitch several times with the Wilmington Blue Rocks as he was coming up through the Royal system, and he has righted that ship in his return back to the, to the majors, and he's rolled off five straight uh, – He's rolled off five starts, of which he has, uh, from a PQS standpoint, the line goes four zero three two four. So that's two PQS dominance and one disaster and three uh, decent or two decent starts. So he's turned it around, and I think he's up now to stay. Matt Dodge's slump, Joey Gallo of the Yankees, his pump, Bobby Dahlbeck of Boston, his dump, Williams Astadio of Minnesota, jump hitter, Ernie Clement of Cleveland, Tyler Wade of the Yankees, and his jump pitcher, Daniel Lynch of Kansas City. Matt, remind us where listeners can keep up with you. Uh, well, I'm not on any kind of social media, so the best way to keep up with me is to go to the Baseball HQ forums. And uh, you can drop me a note in there as a private message. I've got the playing time tomorrow column for the American League Central that runs on Fridays. And you can also, as many do, ask questions and comment on the article right below the article body uh, through the chat section. And I do my best to, to monitor those and give timely responses. It's a terrific column, and uh, it's a lot of fun to read, and I like the the fact that you do reply to the comments that you get. Those are interesting, too. we got real smart readers and forum followers at Baseball HQ. It's one of the advantages of the site, actually, in addition to all the uh, expertise that our analysts and columnists provide. The people who come to visit the site are also real good sources of information, much as they are at First Pitch Arizona, by the way. I'll say we get a lot of really interesting uh, people coming to the 
First Pitch Arizona seminars who aren't experts, at least as far as the industry recognize them, but they know as much or more than a lot of us. So First Pitch Arizona plug right there. Uh, Matt Dodge, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Yes, thanks a lot. Uh, this was this was a lot of fun. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff to go through, and I was glad to do it. So again, I'll I'll echo what Patrick said about First Pitch Arizona. It is arguably the best weekend of the year, and uh, it's a blast. And I've been there many times, and I hope all of you find a way to get there. Thanks, Matt. You're welcome, Patrick. It was fun. I'm glad to do this, and have a great end of the season. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 20th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 40 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday almost full edition, Matt Dodge, playing Time Tomorrow roster analyst at BaseballHQ.com. He's a fine fantasy baseball analyst and writer and a really interesting guy to talk baseball with. A lot of fun talking to Matt. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to wherever you catch your pods. Leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It helps us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in seven days with another Friday full edition. Our expert interview features the baseball professor, Andy Andres, along with our other usual great content. That's Andy Andres coming up next Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll see you next Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.